you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8 uh, this morning. We're in a series that we've entitled The Gospel of John, uh, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus through the eyes of his closest and most dearest of friends, the Apostle John. Our goal, our aim in this series is to, first of all, meet Jesus And as we've been learning in these last weeks, we want to learn from Jesus through his miracles and through his message. And then as the gospel continues to move forward, what John wants us to do is that we might believe in Jesus, put our trust in Jesus. So he says at the end of the gospel, he says, these things are written that you and I might believe in Jesus Christ and that in believing in him, we might find life in him. Well, this morning we find ourselves in John chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 12, where Jesus makes another declaration about who he is. Last week, Jesus made a declaration about being the one who had living water. And that if we would give our lives to him, that we too would have rivers of living water flowing from us. Now, all of this transpires, these declarations, that he's living water, and today that he is the light. It comes during a celebration in the city of Jerusalem. You see, there was a yearly festival going on. It was called the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. This is where the children of Israel would commemorate and celebrate all that God had done for their forefathers as they departed from their slavery in Egypt and headed towards the promised land. And Jesus would use moments of celebration to talk about his ministry. Let me give you an example. When he talked about being rivers of living water, it would come on the heels of a very symbolic moment of the Feast of Tabernacles. You see, in the last day of the feast, a priest would be given the job to go to one of the many pools in Jerusalem and with a gold pitcher, draw water out from it. He then, with great pomp and circumstance, would make his way back to the temple where he would go into the Holy of Holies and douse the altar with that water. It was a remembrance that God had provided by allowing water to come from a rock in their time of wandering in the wilderness. And now, on this last day of the festival, all of Jerusalem would be darkened. And four candelabras or torches in Jerusalem, or in the temple in Jerusalem, would be lit. And it would be a reminder and a memorial to God being that pillar of fire that helped to protect and lead the people of God in their wandering. It is there that Jesus says, just as God led and guided you with a pillar of fire that I want you to know today, I am that light. I am the light of the world. Now, before we get there, you know if you've been with us that we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this incredible gospel. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know we deal with the passage right after the passage we dealt with last week, except today. And so you're like, wait a minute. We were in chapter 7 last week and we finished at verse 52. We should be picking up at verse 53 and then we've got all of the first 11 verses in John chapter 8. 
And then if you know your Bible, then right away you say, and that's a real good passage of Scripture. It's the woman who's caught in adultery. It's the woman who experiences the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ. It is a story that is consistent with the character of Christ, that no matter our sins, no matter what we bring, the evil things that are in our past or maybe even in the present can all find grace and forgiveness at the foot of the cross of Jesus. Why wouldn't we preach that? Well, in your bulletins, you have an insert that says, we're not preaching that text. And I'm going to give you a couple reasons why, because this isn't normally our practice, but we have good reason for doing so. Uh, This passage of scripture in question, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, is a passage that has a lot of questions to it. The first reason, or the first question that comes up, is why does this story, this passage, not show up in the earliest copies or manuscripts that were transcribed way back in in the days of the early church? You see, for a long time, the manuscripts that were being circulated around the early church did not have that passage there. All of a sudden, centuries later, that passage shows up. Well, seemingly, someone added it later on, probably because it was a part of the oral tradition of what Jesus had done. We don't doubt that this thing happened because it's consistent with the character and and the ministry of Jesus, but it just wasn't there. A second reason why we are not choosing to preach it is because of the consistency of the message. And what I mean by that is, if you were to look at verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 52, and chapter 8, verse 12, there seems to be no distance in time there. What I'm meaning is, the contents of what we studied last week and what we're going to study this week is one singular conversation, debate, discussion, that Jesus is having on that same day with the Pharisees. But when we put this newer uh, manuscript of this story into it, it says everybody went home. But then John comes back in, at verse 12 of chapter 8, and he says, and Jesus continues. Wait a minute. If he went home, how could he continue what seemingly is one ongoing conversation? And so if you go from 752 to 812, there seems to be a seamlessness to the storyline. Number three, if you are uh, one who is involved in the Greek language, and if you dig into what is going on in the Greek language, you will notice that there's a pattern, there's a cadence, there are words that John uses over and over and over again. The problem with that passage is that it seems as if a new author has taken over. There's words that John never speaks in his gospel that are found in that passage. There are cadences to it that are foreign to any of the other verses in all of the gospel of John. And it would seem as if someone trying to be helpful, trying to illustrate the ministry of Jesus Christ, thought it important to add this oral tradition, this story, to the the life and ministry of Jesus. We have no issue with the story, but to stay consistent to what we believe to be in the original text, we have made this decision. Now, we're not the only ones. In your Bibles, if you have an ESV, an NIV, an NAS Bible, you will see brackets around it that say the earliest manuscripts do not contain this text. 
the reason why this text has so much uh, well-known nature to it is because it was placed in the King James Version of the Bible, which based its idea on the manuscripts called the Texas Receptus, which was a newer group of manuscripts and weren't some of the older ones that would have shown this discrepancy. So, if you have more questions, go to the, uh, the insert that we have so you can get to know some of the other reasons why. We've also uh, put a sermon in uh, by John Piper who helps to explain in greater detail why we've done this. But for the sake of consistency, we are going to find ourselves in John chapter 8, verse 12. But before we do that, can I just open our time with a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word this morning. And while we come to a passage, around a passage that there's question to, I'm so thankful that you have preserved and you have sought fit through human hands to preserve this work of the gospel. I thank you, though, even this is in question, Lord, that no doctrine is altered. No beliefs about who you are or what you have done um, gets changed as a result of this. I thank you for the honesty and the transparency of these transcribers and uh, these translators who continue to bring even the questionable things to us so that we can stand confidently on this word of God that is sharper than any double-edged sword. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to you being light, I pray that that light will illuminate our hearts, that that light will show us our sin, that that light will lead and guide us to repentance and restoration, to find the grace and mercy that can only be found in you. I pray, Lord, that this light will be used to change lives. I pray that it would do so, bringing great glory and honor to you and you alone, and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and all God's people said, amen. Well, we live in a world of light. In fact, our neighboring city, Aurora, is called the city of light. We love our lights and are thankful for the light that our friend Edison gave us. But would you know that the brightest, shiniest of lights is a light that can be seen some 275 miles away? This light is so bright that it costs $1 million a year to shine. This light is so bright that you could almost see it from space. Now you would think that this light, that boasts more than 42.3 billion candela, that is the instrument of how we determine the light of lights, 42.3 billion. To put that in perspective, a single candle is one candela. A 60-watt light bulb is 60,000 candela. This light, 42.3 billion candela. You think the scientists behind it must love having it. Nope. You would think the laboratory that has this ability to shine a light this bright uh, would want all the world to see it, but it's no laboratory. Could you believe with me this morning that this brightest light is only used to show the wealth of a hotel in Las Vegas? You see, the Luxor Hotel has what is called the sky beam, the shiniest, most brilliant of all lights that is man-made in this world. And it shines over the city of Vegas. As I said, it can be seen some 275 miles away by approaching aircraft. 
It is so bright that if you wanted to at some point put yourself in its ray, you would need to be 15 stories from the actual point of illumination not to be burned to death. That's how powerful this light is. Now, it's not just one light. In fact, it's 39 individual lights that make this beam. This light, so powerful. This light, so brilliant. Listen to me today, my friends, pales in comparison to the light of Jesus Christ. And so what we want to do is put our time and attention and focus on that light that changes lives. We do so by opening the scriptures and seeing Jesus say to a crowd listening to him the following words in John 8, verse 12. He says, again, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What we are going to learn is that this is the dividing line for the believer and the unbeliever. What you do with this light will determine your destiny. And what we're going to see is that played out. As Jesus says he is the light of the world, there will be many who will say, no, you're not. And will seek to discredit and destroy the message of that light. But in verse 30, we're going to see that as that light shines in the world, many will believe in him. And so what we want to do is we want to learn about this light and we want to see what this light declares about Jesus and what does Jesus mean when he says he is the light of the world. Now, I want you to notice that I'm not going to invest a lot of time in the pushback. There's going to be a lot of talk about Jesus not having witnesses to what he says. If you go back to John chapter uh, 7, you'll see that I address that, and, and I will leave that to that. That whole question of the Jewish system of having two or three witnesses to st- swear by the statements you make, we're going to leave that there, and I want to focus our attention on this theme of Jesus being light. So what does he mean when he says that he is the light of the world? Notice, first of all, that all history, all of history focuses in on him. What Jesus says when he says, I am the light of the world, he is telling the world he is God. Now you say, wait a minute, I don't see anywhere in the text that it says that Jesus is God. For the Jewish audience, they would totally get this. Because light was symbolic of God and his presence in the world. And what Jesus is going to say to these Pharisees and any who will listen, he makes this statement, I know where I've been or where I've come from and I know where I am going. What Jesus is saying is, listen, by declaring that I'm the light, I want you to know I was there in the beginning and I'll be there in the end. How do we know that to be true? Because of light. If you were to go back, and you can turn there if you'd like, to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says that that uh, world, that cosmos, in the beginning, was formless and void, and something was hovering over the earth, darkness. And in verse 3 it says that at the beginning of this existence that we know of time and space as we know it, Light is what begins it all. And what Jesus is saying is, I was the light 
that got this all started. I was the illumination that brought life and vegetation and the world as we know it into existence. Now, the Pharisees knew that. They knew that God was there in the beginning. And they also knew their history. That in the Garden of Eden, man and woman would enjoy the light of God. They would walk with that light. They'd experience fellowship with that light. But at some point, because of the temptation of the devil, Adam and Eve would fall. And a darkness would not extinguish the light, but it would begin to cover the light that was so radiant and beautiful. The storyline of the Old Testament is a storyline of greater and greater darkness. That darkness hits a chapter point in Genesis chapter 6 where it says that as God looked down on his creation, he saw that every inclination of the heart was to do evil. Talk about a dark time. It wouldn't take long from the original sin for darkness to infiltrate the world. But God would shower upon Noah great grace. And that flicker of light would continue. That light would continue through Noah onto Abraham, of which God would call out of Ur of the Chaldees and bring him to a promised land that he would promise his descendants. And he said in that prophecy, you will shine like stars of the sky. You're going to be the light. And so as you bless others, they will be blessed by me. But farther and farther as the world continued, even with these little glimpses of light, darkness began to overtake the world. Darkness would overtake the Israelites and they would find themselves in captivity. But little by little, God would continue to point on the horizon and say, there's light coming on the horizon. The prophets would see this. And the prophets would say, Israel, don't lose hope. God's promise of that light coming into the world is on its way. And it wouldn't be until Isaiah, some 700 years before Christ, would articulate these words. He would say in Isaiah chapter 9, the following statement. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Now, that would seem ambiguous to you if you didn't know the context. In verse 6, only four verses after that verse is shared, we get the name of that light. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And 700 years from the statement being made by Isaiah, that light would inaugurate itself here on earth in the city of Bethlehem. And that light's name would be Jesus. Now John, he knows about this light. That's the whole theme of this book that he's written. Just turn a couple pages back to John chapter 1 and you'll see that this issue of light is on the mind and in the heart of the Apostle John when he says this in verse 3. At the beginning of this gospel, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. 
He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now John the Baptist was not the light but came to bear witness about the lights. The true light, Jesus Christ, enlightens everyone and he was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. So here Jesus comes, and he shines his light for a short season in this earth. He shines it through his message. He shines it through his miracles. He shines it through his mercy on the cross. But then that light for a season would be extinguished from the world. And we'll talk about why that happens in a moment. But what we see in the totality of Scripture is what exactly John says The light was in the world, and the darkness could not overcome the world. So you turn to the pages of the book of Revelation, the last page of your Bible, and you will see that light will be the light that will shine in heaven. We will have no need for sun. We will have no need for moon in heaven for all of eternity because we will have the radiance, the beautiful radiance and majesty of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen? And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, all of history pivots on me. All of history centers itself on me. All of history is focused in on me. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is saying, I was, I am, and I will forever be God. And so, what do the Pharisees do? They hate it. You see, we've got a problem. Light came in the world, but the world didn't like it because of darkness. And so the second truth we see today is that those in the dark will hate him. Those who are in the dark will hate him. And the rest of the passage deals with the Pharisees hating on Jesus. Now what inevitably will happen is if you are in darkness and light shines, the first thing you will do because of the penetrating nature of light is you will shield your eyes. You will do what I wish I could do every Sunday so I could see you guys out there, okay? Because I got a lot of lights shining on me. And As I'm in darkness, those lights get brighter and brighter. What the Pharisees are doing is they're shielding, they're deflecting the light because they don't want to see it. Write this down somewhere 10 times in the text from verse 12 to verse 30. We see the Pharisees interrupt Jesus. They don't interrupt Jesus to ask him questions because they want to believe. They don't ask Jesus to stop for clarification. They want to stop Jesus' words because like a blinding light, they're trying to put distance between them and their darkness and Jesus who is in light. Now, they're not the only ones. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 3, if you want to turn there for a moment, in his message and conversation with Nicodemus, says he has a judgment for the world. He says this in John 3, verse 19, 20, and 21. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true 
comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You either are living in light or you're living in darkness. And Jesus says this is his judgment for those that live in darkness. You're going to hate the light. Why? Because light exposes what we don't want people to see. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve love God, love hanging out with God. God comes walking around in the garden and they want to meet up with God. That is until they fall to sin. That same God who walked with them, who talked with them, now because of sin and because of their shame, now when, when God comes walking, what happens? They go running. They don't want to be anywhere near God because that light is exposing that they rebelled against God. So it's not uncommon, my friends, that many of us in our sin will do it privately. We'll do it where we think nobody is watching. We'll do it where where we can do it in private and that shame stays with us and, and doesn't get broadcast. If you really want to see how light exposes darkness, watch the next time someone falls morally. Politician, pastor, a person of notable interest. And look at them when they have to stand before the cameras and have to talk about their failure. It sure doesn't look like they enjoyed their sin, right? They enjoyed it in darkness. But when light exposes it, they become undone. Likewise, we live in a world that loves to keep things in the dark. Now, I might add that depravity will cause people to lose the feeling of being shamed in the light. And we are living in a time and an age where people aren't ashamed about sin anymore, right? And the reason why is they have allowed their consciences to be so seared that the light doesn't even bother them anymore. And that's why they can celebrate that their sin is okay. And it should be celebrated and embraced and, and loved. Now, why do they do this? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the reason why is that the God of this age, the devil has blinded their minds so that they might not see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most notable work that the devil is doing is he is trying to get between the light of Jesus and us. And he wants to eclipse that. And the way he eclipses that light is through temptation and sin. And what he says is, listen, just as he did with Adam and Eve, listen, you can do what you want. You don't have to listen to God. God's a killjoy. You do what you want. You do what feels right, and you'll be okay. But what Jesus is going to say is, that is going to lead to a place of hopelessness. You see, what what God will say, what Jesus will say here, is that that type of living in hatred to Jesus is futile. And here's the reason why. That group of men is conspiring. We already know in the book of John that they are planning to arrest Jesus and to destroy Jesus, to kill Jesus. We know in God's preordained preordained time and place that this is going to happen. They're going to arrest Jesus and they're going to be excited about it because they will say, finally, we can bring darkness back to the world. 
And so they hang Jesus and they hang him up on a cross and they crucify him. And let us not forget what happened as Jesus gave up his spirit. Do you remember what happened in that ninth hour? Darkness overtook the scenery. It would seem as if darkness had won the day. The people who hated Jesus could celebrate. We have taken care of. We have extinguished this light. But listen to me. Praise be to God and our Father in heaven that on that third and glorious day, out from that tomb, that light bore and shined like the noonday sun. And out of that grave of the dead came the living light of the world. And so the world can't overtake it. And so what God is saying through Christ is this. All of history is focused on him. Those in darkness will hate him. But listen, without him, you and I have no hope. Because Jesus says, listen, he says in in the end of this passage that there's this conversation, this argument that's going on, And he says, listen, I'm going away in verse 21, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. He goes on, and they say, well, where where is he going? Will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I tell you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Three times Jesus says, you will die in your sins, meaning your life will be utterly meaningless. That at the end of all of it, you are going to die, and you will die far from me. Now, there's two things that come from that. Number one, the futility of our living. The Bible says over and over again that as we live in darkness, we stumble about. Let me give you some verses that will help you understand this. Proverbs 4.19. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Deuteronomy 28.29. It says, in darkness you will grope at noon. When it's brightest, you're going to be groping about. As the blind man gropes in darkness, you will not prosper. Later on in this gospel, in John eleven ten, But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What Jesus is saying is that you will die in your sins means you will live a futile life. The best way to explain it is when you get up in the night... And all the lights in your house are off. And you stumble about out of your bed because you've heard a noise or something has startled you. And you're trying to find the light. So you are out there and you can't see anything. You know that that God-forsaken chest of dresser drawers, right, is there because you've stubbed your toe on it in the dark numerous times. You know it's there, but you can't find it. And as you're making your way into the hallway, your children have left you all manner of Legos and Matchbox cars on the hallway floor. And what happens? You feel the great pain as you stumble about in futility because you step on these things. 
What God is saying is, through his son Jesus Christ, that without him lighting the way, your life will be like a blind man groping about, never knowing where you're going, never knowing what you should be doing. There is zero purpose in life. And let me tell you this morning, if you are far from God, the reason why you can't find purpose, the reason why you can't find peace, is you are trying to do it without the light of the world. And so you're going about begging for someone to turn on the light. But Jesus goes even farther and he says, not only will there be futility in life, but at the end of your day, you will die in your sins. Now, Jesus doesn't bring up hell at this point, but that's where people go who die in their sins. And I think it is a a bit ironic that the way Jesus defines or describes hell is a place of utter darkness. And so he says, listen, your surrounding will remain dark, but it will be the blackest, darkest dark you've ever experienced because right now we have the common grace of God shining around us. We are not as dark as we could be, but there's a day coming, my friends, if you die in your sin apart from Christ, That you will enter into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where God will send those who rebel against him a place called hell, a place of utter darkness. Now, Jesus could have stopped there. And he could have said, listen, I am so tired of dealing with you people. You don't know me. You're of this earth, I'm from heaven, I know where I've come, I know where I'm going. You don't have any idea, you're groping about trying to figure it out and you have the audacity to tell me that I'm a worker of Satan. Forget it, the light's closed. I'm gonna take my light, I'm gonna go back to heaven and nobody's gonna get any light from this point on. But that's not what Jesus does. Amidst such darkness, notice what he says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. He invites and he says, listen, you can have hope. You can find light. That light is found in me. And notice what he says. There's a pronoun I want you to see, and there's a place that I want you to see. The pronoun is this, whoever. Now, I'm a Greek scholar, and that word, whoever, means whoever. Got that? It doesn't take a Greek scholar to understand he is inviting all. That pronoun is important. He's not just talking to the Pharisees. He's saying whoever. He did this with, with his passage earlier about rivers of living water. But notice the place that he says it. Our text tells us that he says all of these things in verse 20 in the treasury. If you were to have a map of the treasury, you would know that the treasury finds its place located in what is called the court of women. The court of women was where everyone was invited to go in the temple. It was to be separated from the court of Gentiles, which only meant men could go into there. It was to be separated from the holy place, which is where priests of all kinds could go. And it was to be separated from the holy of holies, where the uh, chief priest was only allowed to go once a year. Jesus is saying this invite to take in the light of the world. He says, whoever, in a place where anybody could hear him. And that same invitation is here today. 
You're stumbling around this world. You can't find purpose. You can't find peace. You don't know which way is up. Turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and he will shine the light, and he will guide you, and he will lead you in this world, and yes, into the world of light called heaven. And so take that and turn to that light. Now, for many here, you have turned to that light. For a long time, you have been children of light. What does this passage mean for you? It means we have something to highlight. There is something we are to highlight because of him. And this truth bears itself out in two ways. By being a Christ follower, we have, in the proverbial sense, seen the light. We have embraced the light by faith and through grace. That light now is what should lead us and guide us. The psalmist says that the light of his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This light of salvation shines brightly for us so that we can live upright and holy lives until he comes. But time out. Is that true of you, Christian? You who are a child of light, are you living in the light? Romans 13, 12 says, Therefore, let us, Christians, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. That means, friends, that every decision, every thought, every action of the Christ follower that needs to be asked of what we do, what we think, where we're going, hinges on this question. Is what I'm involved in light or is what I'm involved in darkness? And brothers and sisters, I am saddened, number one, by my own pursuit of darkness. The decisions I make, the things that come out of my mouth, the things I allow my eyes to see, I know in my heart the Holy Spirit of God says that is dark. And a child of God should not have fellowship with darkness. And if I know my congregation, I know you too fight this as well. And if you're like your pastor, you don't just fight it, you fall to it. And I am so thankful for that light that John tells the church in 1 John, if we will confess our sins, that light is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and so that we don't have to lie to God and say we're without sin, but we can have fellowship with that light and we can experience what it is to live in that light. So let me ask you this morning, as you look back at the week before, were you living in light? Or because of decisions, thoughts, and actions, you allowed yourself to go back into that world of darkness of which Christ rescued you from. Number two, it doesn't just involve our sin, but that light has been given to us. And in response, we are reflectors of that light. 
Now, I'm going to do something. I'm going to ask for some things to happen. Here's going to be some moving parts. I'm going to ask that the lights get turned down and the screens get shut. Okay? The job, don't be afraid, people. The job of the church in this dark age is to be reflectors of light. So you symbolize the world you live in. I symbolize the role of the Christian. The radiance of God illuminates my life. Now, I get to enjoy that. You're in darkness. I can read right now. I can see the things around me. I can see where the edge of the stage is. I'm living pretty good. But as I look out at my loved ones and my neighbors and my friends and my coworkers and schoolmates, I see you all living in darkness. How in the world will you see the light unless what I do is I begin to shine that light to the world around me? That's our job. Our job is to deflect that light to the dark and needy world around us. Now, we don't do that. We don't do that with pride. We don't do that with arrogance. We don't do that by saying, I've got the light, you don't, nanana boo boo, which is Greek for you being a knucklehead. We do it as one who once was blinded ourselves. The Apostle Peter put it this way. You can turn the lights back on. The Apostle Peter must have been in the audience, and I'll close with this verse. He must have been in the audience of Jesus in that day because in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says this about Christ's followers. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's what Jesus did for us. Now what are we to do? He did all of that, church, that you may proclaim the excellencies, the greatness of Jesus who called you out of darkness and brought you in to his marvelous, his wonderful light. So as reflectors of the glory and grace of Jesus, let us go out into the dark world and show the world that which they cannot see, the glorious grace and gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. And when you do that and you depend on the Holy Spirit, listen to me, your light will shine 10 times brighter than that light at the top of the Luxor Hotel. And God will be brought incredible glory and lives will be saved. Amen.